dark out there, up in the sky, and, uh, well, it's just pretty dark everywhere, isn't it? Uh, pretty bleak, war going on, pandemic going on, yeah, uh, you know, it's, uh, I'm not here to cheer you up, uh, I'm, I'm just here to be with you, you know, and look at the moon, or, you know, Look at where the moon is, even if we can't see it, and just kind of be together in the darkness and, uh, you know, keep cycling toward the light. Uh, that's, that's the plan anyway. Uh, but I do have, I do have words and music for you, and, uh, I find, I find that helps, uh, when, when things are, are bleak. And when things are not bleak, words, words and music, you know. Uh, anyway, I'm going to be reading to you today uh, from a wonderful anthology, And If That Mockingbird Don't Sing, Parenting Stories Gone Speculative. And this is 75 Flash by 76 Authors, edited by Hannah Grieco and published by Alternating Current Press. And uh, I'll just, I'll read you a little bit from Hannah Grieco's letter from the editor. So I started writing more sentences that told the truth. I left the problems unsolved, or solved them messily, humanly, and imperfectly. I redefined love and motherhood in my head and in my writing, abandoning sainthood and the impossible, chafing expectations that saturated my daily life. I wrote hard words. I wrote fewer essays for established parenting magazines and instead wrote shorter, more vulnerable literary works. Sometimes true, sometimes fiction. But fiction is still true on some level, isn't it? If there's a vampire, there's a lust for blood underneath her story. If there's a ghost... There's a fear of, or fascination with, death. I wanted to read more stories about what parenting really felt like to others. Not the Hallmark card variety, but the 3 a.m. insomnia parenting. The fear parenting. The anger, the grief, the love bigger than all of it parenting. Beautiful not because of its perfection, but because of its ugly persistence. Its messy, human, imperfect beauty. When I put out the call for submissions to this Flash anthology, the response was enormous. Writers from all over the world sent in their speculative parenting stories. And we redefined speculative, too. Supernatural, horror, fantasy, but also the stories nobody wants or expects parents to tell. Speculative because these stories aren't supposed to exist, but they do. 
they breathe, they rage, they laugh, they scream, and they fly. And I'm going to share some of these stories with you. Uh, they're, um, I'm not going to read you all 75 uh, because, uh, well, that would take a, a lot longer than I have. Um, but I'm going to, I'm going to read you a bunch and then hopefully you'll go out and get your paws on your own copy of, and if that mockingbird don't sing and you know, you don't have to be a parent, uh, to, to enjoy these, these stories. Uh, there's, there's a little something for everybody. Uh, so, uh, let's, let's jump right in. Fever Dream by Addie Tsai. There she was, my twin, my darling, or at least that's what I used to call her in secret, in the shut closet of my room away from her. There she was, my twin sister, in another hospital bed, but not in a hospital this time, but in a room where the bed floated, suspended in the air. She was dying. Her entire face was red as a rash, her body small as a child who doesn't make it long into the night. I'm not sure if it was a dream or a fantasy. There were fantasies within the dream that made it so. I had a thought, and millions of hand-sized teddy bears appeared out of nowhere in her two small closets, underneath her blankets, next to her ears. So many on the floor I fell to the ground. I had another dream, and made it so again. Watched her hand as it reached for my cheek like applesauce. But it wasn't my cheek that was soft and pink like baby food, but her own. My little twin, my little darling of a duplicate, she was back in that bed again, although I hadn't recalled her leave, suddenly complaining of the way she had to limp on crutches the length of a stage to accept an award, her long-lost hip fastened together with a metal plate. But I have to tell the truth now. It smelled like rotten fruit in there, an untreated gash, and the teddy bears, they were real, but their ears had turned yellow, curling inward, like the neglected love letters of one who is rejected. And my sister, my darling little second edition, she was just an idea, a dream I left tied to the doorknob of my closet. to see you again It's been some years That dress looks real pretty Thought there'd be more here And she
if I stand my eyes closed she stands right here that girl's She have a family No, none that I can see Guess it's just you and me Say goodbye to Emily So alive Emily So alive Emily That was Minka Hoist with Wolford Scott with So Alive Emily. Eden by Jamie Nakamura Lynn. Autumn. In the garden there was charred there, and there were dead there, and the frost had hit there, and the ground was hard. You look at the white crackle in the soil, like mold, like chapped skin, and you think, Nothing will ever come of this again. Spring. Only the dead keep rising. What's that? Our two-year-old asks as we stamp around in the soil. She points at something round and beige poking through the weeds. Is that a Barbie hat? My husband asks. But the tiny cap is embroidered with the Bass Pro logo, and I know. I yank out some weeds brush away the dirt, and there it is, a mat of black hair growing underneath the cap, a pair of aviator glasses just barely visible through the dirt. Like an errant carrot, my father is taking root in our garden. Did you put cardboard down last fall? My husband asks, pulling out a clump of crabgrass. Cardboard first, then the compost, he says. That's how you keep the weeds back. I did not do this. Last fall, grief kept me indoors. Drawn face, drawn shades. Now look. Creeping Charlie in all the corners. Clumps of crabgrass, invasive flowers, expired fathers. Hi, Dad, I say, as I sprinkle lettuce seeds down a furrow. Good growing, Dad, I say, as I transplant the tomatoes outdoors. Each week, more of him emerges. There's his nose, and the next week, his upper lip. I try to cajole my daughter across the garden's chicken wire fence. 
Your Agon wants to see you. He'll be so surprised at how big you are. No, she hollers, her O long as a hymn. Sorry, Dad, I say, after setting her up with a tablet in the hammock. He smiles beatifically, but still does not speak. He looks like someone buried a bobblehead up to its neck, decapitated. Perhaps he needs more energy. Fish emulsion, mushroom compost. I wait impatiently for his voice to gather strength. Summer. Dragging my daughter into the garden, I am knocked off balance by her wiggling. We land hard in the dirt. Will she cry? She does not. I want to go inside, she says. We should say hi to Agon since we're here, I say. She shakes her head. Just one hi, then inside. Hi. I grind up all his favorite foods. Green grapes, chips, daikon soaked in sugar and shoyu, and pour them over his roots. He's grown up to his waist. His hand when I stroke it is the skin of a month-old potato. Dad, I say. Dad? He still is not ripe enough to talk. It has been so long. One evening, my husband comes home to find her in the hammock on her tablet, jelly crumbs stuck to her thighs. Was she out here all day, he asks. Did you at least put on her sunscreen? Fall. During the hour of the ox, when the fabric between the living and the dead is thinnest, I look at the tops of his sport sandals coming through the earth. In the moonlight, the weeds throw long shadows. I've given up on all the plants except my father. I've lost the plot. But soon he will be fully emerged, and then what? The thought of my father decaying with our kitchen scraps is enough to make me weep. I rub the tears on his ankles. The next morning, I swear his mouth is more ajar. I plop her in the hammock, sit next to him, and think of every sad thing. The last time he held her, when he lost his strength and slid down the wall, how he said, thank you for taking care of me. I smooth my tears on his face. They are not enough. I shut off her tablet. No, she wails. I collect her tear with my thumb. No, she says, when I carry her over the fence. A loose wire catches her kicking leg and she whimpers. Sorry, I tell her, sorry. I set her next to my father. We need to cry, I say. Why? she asks. It will help Agon, I say. How his body was at the end, all his crocodile skin. Cry, I tell her, but she does not. Cry, I say again. I hold her face up to my father's tiny one and hold her cheeks between my hands. Cry, I say, holding her tighter than I ever have before. Nose to nose, mouth to mouth. Cry, I tell my daughter, and finally, she does.
sin for someone to crack a word. The glisten of rain on two tongueless birds. This prison despairing of ever being heard. We're touching Clutching this dead branch of the old sycamore, I am searching the skies in your face for a trace of code. strangely in sync wings beating hearts quailing on the lip of the brink to be seeing the links of this chain Slip and sink while here I am we wait for one cracked bell.
to ring in the day. That was Minka Hoist with Ring in the Day. The Impenetrable Boundaries of a Temporal Loop by Rachel O'Cleary. I don't know when I got stuck in the time loop. I'm afraid I may have been here for quite some time before I even noticed. I realize this seems like the kind of detail a person would spot straight away, but it's not exactly Groundhog Day in here, or my ex-boyfriend's wedding day, or the day I die. It's just Wednesday. At least, I think it is. A gray Wednesday. The sky has been one long, low cloud for months. On this day that I am stuck in, I am always awakened at the first sliver of dawn to the prickly sensation of someone staring. A large brown eye centimeters from my face. Jamie, my three-year-old, needs the toilet. On this day that has frozen around me, Precisely three minutes into breakfast, someone spills a glass of milk on the kitchen table. Usually Jamie. Sometimes his sister, Sarah. Sometimes me. But always, always, the milk spreads everywhere. Dampens the bottoms of cereal boxes, drips between the leaves of the table and onto the floor, dots the back of my neck as I crouch down to clean it up. On this day that keeps me trapped, no matter what else I change, the following things happen. Sarah loses one shoe. Jamie needs the toilet the moment he is buckled into his car seat. We run out of yogurt and bananas, and I do exactly three loads of washing. I do this, even knowing the baskets will be full again in the morning, because the one and only time I didn't, my husband and I argued so bitterly that we might have divorced if I wasn't living in a temporal void. I don't know why I'm stuck. In the movies, there's always something the main character needs to do to be released from the time loop, like win Andy McDowell's heart or prevent a brutal murder. But as far as I can tell, my purpose here is to get from morning to night without allowing anyone I live with to be uncomfortable for too long. I have passed an eternity in the kitchen, vacantly sweeping up cracker crumbs while the clock ticks, the ceiling fan wobbles through its lazy rotation, and water swirls down the drain in a tight spiral. I don't think there is a way out. I've been here so long that I'm beginning to forget things I once knew, like the capital of Colombia, the scientific name for the common blackbird, and what food tastes like when you're actually hungry. I'm scrubbing the sink again when my phone rings. I just wanted to check in about tomorrow, comes my husband's voice. Tomorrow? My chest bristles with goose flesh. Tomorrow, Jamie's birthday. Do you need me to get anything on my way home? My knees wobble and I drop into a chair. Remnants of spilled milk seep through my leggings, leaving a cold spot on my thigh. Cracker crumbs dig into my forearm where it rests on the table. It can't be Jamie's birthday. That's ages away, as it has been for months now. The clock ticks. 
The ceiling fan wobbles through its lazy rotation, and water swirls down the drain in a tight spiral.
was strange when you were born. Now you're stranger yet. Accidents always fall to you. We're all dancing with no net. That was Minka Hoist with Three Raisins. Such a Fun Age by K.S. Walker. What are you reading? You look up from your book to the stranger who just eased onto the far end of your bench, and then up to Evan on the merry-go-round, and then back to the stranger. Oh, it's a fantasy, you say, your eyes already searching the page for the sentence you left behind. It takes a moment, but you settle back into a rhythm. You're ready to turn the page when the stranger in the red coat shifts. You can tell by the air between you that she's ready to ask another question. You surreptitiously peek at Evan, moving your head as little as possible, hoping that talking Tina can't tell that your eyes have left the book. Evan's round, brown face, smiling out of a hooded jacket, comes back into view. She still hasn't said anything. You finally exhale and lift a rough corner to turn it. What is he, five? Interrupting Ingrid rasps, nodding toward your child. No, you answer, without telling her that he's almost three, because it's only white ladies who would mistake you're barely not a toddler for a child that much older, and she doesn't need to know his age anyway. You cross your right knee over your left, shifting your weight away from playground Pamela. You raise the paperback so that it almost touches your nose, but you can see Evan ease off the merry-go-round and tread through the wood chips toward the slide. Mama, look! Evan croons from the top of the structure. In a blur of navy, he's whooshed down the slide. His two feet are barely on the ground before he's running back around toward the stairs. He could play here for hours, without you. That's the point. You deserve this. You push papers from nine to five. You put a vegetable on the plate at dinner and make the kid eat it. You hang artwork. You kiss boo-boos. You hide, you seek, you bite your tongue until you taste blood when he's not giving you a hard time. It's just that he's having a hard time. And then read bedtime stories when all you really, really want is a second glass of Malbec. You're both the hero and the bad guy, and today, you even remembered to shower. You deserve a small moment that belongs to you and only you. Don't you? Don't you? Satisfied that the kiddo is safely occupied, you lower your eyes. You'd kill to finish this scene. The playground drops away as magic-wielding half-men, half-beasts roar into battle. You grip the book a little tighter, eyes scanning a little faster, and... Is she fucking serious right now? Honestly, who still smokes anymore? And at a playground? Does she smoke around her own kids? Wait, where are her kids? You let your annoyance straighten your spine and give lung cancer Laura a pointed stink eye. 
She winks through the nicotine haze. You arch around to bring the swing set and the jungle gym into view. They are just as empty as when you arrived. You know what I love about kids? They're just so malleable. You can shape them, craft them into anything. Nothing is impossible at this age. Is her voice really that scratchy? Or do you imagine it more so because you find her abrasive? Look, lady, you start to say, turning back to establish some boundaries. It's what your therapist is always telling you to do, right? Only, Evan calls out to you. Mama, he says. And it's the same voice you hear from across the hall when he's talking in his sleep. It sounds like he could have murmured it against your ear. Or it could be a whisper carried across the ocean. You look back to the slide, then the merry-go-round that's still spinning. If a ride spins and your child isn't on it, was he even there at all? Panic levers you forward, causing your book to tumble into the wood chips. Anxiety claws at your chest, your throat. You circle the play structure in disbelief. You cannot reconcile that your child was just here, and now? Such a fun age a voice behind you cackles, and you spin back toward the bench, but the wicked one is gone too, blinked into the folds. There's the slowing creak of metal on metal. Wind rustles dead leaves across the playground. A noise so small escapes your throat, you can't be certain you made any sound at all. Yellow tree leaves laugh Like water Tall grasses move in waves You're the son of The preacher's daughter He is rolling in his grave Say he never saw the ocean Or sent letters on a screen Autumn breezes cause commotion This is the worst you've ever seen Days peeling off like paper, nights spent feeling phantom pain. 
All your promises turned vapor. All your pleasures, they are vain. Turn, turn the soil. Black, red, mud Drips like oil Tastes like blood He tried so hard to prepare you For a life you'd never lead Short-term jobs and lovers snare you You raise no stone, you plant no seed Turn, turn the soil Black, red, mud Drips like oil Tastes like blood That was Minka Hoist with Turn, Turn the Soil. Order Up by Joanna Tice. Summer in our new neighborhood meant construction, buildings raised to welcome hurricane season. My mother-in-law Alice and I were lolling on beach chairs, watching a yellow earth mover jerk over a bare plot of land. No cravings? Alice asked eyeing my belly like a hungry crow. No, I feel great, I said. When Alice didn't reply, I lowered my feet to the bleached concrete. Does that mean something's wrong, do you think? Alice patted my knee. It's early yet. I sat back, adjusting my shirt over my growing belly, breathing in time to the thudding of steel against rock, 
of the up-tempo warning of a truck in reverse. Andy was at a work site when you sought escape. During my out-breaths, I glimpsed Alice's fluffy bedroom slippers pressed under the closed bedroom door. She'd been there since the first contraction, calling out mindless, minimizing instructions. Birthing you was nothing like the heaving, groaning messiness of pushing out a live infant, nothing like what Alice was describing. A mere plop, and you were there. You were perfect, immaculately accurate. You fit in the palm of my hand, tan with gentle burgundy freckles. I cupped you and felt your heat press into my skin. What's going on? Go away. I can help if you'd let me in. I've been through this before. Alice couldn't help. Hadn't been through this before. No one had, it seemed. Because on this question, the internet was binary. There were instructions for how to hatch a bird and instructions for how to birth a baby. The decision tree did not include a third option, that of a human, I've always thought of myself as human, delivering an egg. Alice did not leave. She was a sandblaster wearing me down. When I tried to explain, she said, like a chicken's or more like an ostrich egg? Neither, I called back. Worried about keeping you warm, I snapped off the air conditioner buzzing in the window. Can you bring it? Two hours later, your grandmother's reply was the thud of a box hitting hardwood. No offense, but I don't think you need an incubator. I think you need a therapist. I was brooding, impatient. To distract myself, I tended you. I changed your chips. I turned you. It was the seventh day when the farm woman online recommended that I candle you to find out whether you lived within your shell. Alice brought the expensive light I'd asked for. But I didn't like how she lingered after dropping it off. Her voice was blackberry sweet, provoking Andy, running her nails across my door. Postpartum happens with miscarriages, too, you know. I keep telling you, Ma, it wasn't a miscarriage. She's got something in there. Alice's voice rose. You're her husband. You need to shake some sense into her. She's scrambled. If I hadn't hardened toward him already, Andy's appreciative laugh would have curdled me. When a hen begins laying, she may leave a little blood behind, smearing her baby's shell. But she will not leak blood on her bedsheets. The bleeding will not last for weeks. I rested my cheek against the cool of the door, chewing the heat of the room, forgetting whether I'd turned you yet. Without the air conditioner, with your incubator humming at an ideal 100.5 degrees Fahrenheit, I was radiating, iridescent with heat. What have you been doing in the bathroom? It looks like someone died. When I told him about the blood, Andy sounded worried for the first time since your delivery. He said that if I didn't go to the doctor, he'd break down the door. But it's nearly hatch day, I choked out through a mouthful of feathers. A broody hen will peck and scratch at the hands that reach into her nest and take away her eggs. But given the weight difference between a hen and a man... The fact that a man could wring her neck as easily as turning a screw, she has no real choice. When I came home from the disbelieving doctor, 
the house smelled of breakfast. Unmistakable smells of butter sliding across a heated nonstick pan, of creamy white albumen firming above the gas flame, of bubbling yellow yolk. Alice and Andy on either side of a pan, she holding the spatula, he sprinkling salt on a single egg. Broody hens will peck and scratch. Broody mothers, watching their baby fry, will crack. Strains down the wind, it blows. My thirst is gonna overflow. Drying my heart, flooding soul. 
That was Minka Hoist with Winter Drought, written with Dietmar Berkner and Dirk Holmlund. Simon by Naz Knutsen. Today he toddles between the aisles, from fresh fruits to canned vegetables, from spaghetti to cereal. Everyone gushes about how cute he is. Everyone smiles. His mother tries to keep up with his excitement and the compliments. He insists on carrying a box of Cheerios half of his height. She helps him get it into the red cart before he reaches up to her and says, Hold you? Pulling him tight, she sneaks in little kisses on his curls and carries him on her hip. He loves the snuggles, but they won't contain him for long. As soon as those tiny new sneakers touch the ground, he tries to run, then tumbles and falls. In the middle of the aisle, he notices his reflection on the tile. He beams as tiny hands clap. There's a twinkle in those big, beautiful eyes. A shopper helps him up. She says he is so cute. She probably asks his name, too. Suddenly, he feels shy and hides behind his mom. His little head occasionally peeks at the strangers, those kind people who wave and smile. Twelve years from now, he will meet his friends at his neighborhood park to play basketball. A lady walking her dog will call the cops to say there are people at the court who don't look like they live here. Twenty years from now, the cops will pull him over at a traffic stop. The box of Cheerios sits still among the bags of groceries he has picked up on the way home. His mother, walking up and down the front porch will call his phone with her long, trembling fingers over and over and over again.
first boy on the bus was the first one to rise and watches the others bore with sleep caught in their eyes but first he walked out in the dark to pull down hay and set out grain and break the ice in the galvanized trough and bury his face in her mane The first boy sits up front His fresh brushed teeth It jokes with the driver Though the first boy is shy Of speech He watches the others Waiting by Farmhouse Mailbox ravine how their lives look while he remains unseen seem long when you used to be in alone but it knows later on he'll be riding that long bus home First boy on the bus is the last one to descend. He 
scuffs the packed gravel path back Thinking about having a friend Hoist with The First Boy. Enclosure by Lindy Biller. I'm still sleeping when the school calls me. My son is sick, they say. I will need to come fetch him, and quickly. The zoo closes soon. The chaperones are not prepared for this, and I am his mother. I am the one who signed the permission form. There is no one else they can call. By instinct, I check my phone. What time is it? Have I missed the ending? But the display is still pulsing, white numbers counting down on a black screen. Somehow, the numbers seem alive. I bring the phone back to my ear. The woman inside is adamant. My son has forgotten his lunch at home, has grown fangs and claws, and I should have expected this, naming him Lowell, the old French for Little Wolf, a name I chose because it could mean anything, a first name or last, one syllable or two, a school or a street sign or a poet or a villain or the name of a song that always makes me cry. It means Little Wolf, the woman says. I don't speak French, I say, but the woman hangs up, then texts me the address. I am prepared for the worst, I am expecting blood. But I pass through the front gate and everything looks normal. The monkeys leaping from branches, the red pandas ambling up an angled platform, the otters twirling and flipping and somersaulting under man-made waterfalls. The zookeepers stare at me. I keep my head down, neck curved. I will know my son when I see him. I have brought his lunch, the one he forgot, and what am I supposed to do if not feed it to him? The yogurt will spoil. The milk will curdle. I was only asleep for an afternoon, a week at most. But his animal crackers are already stale, his buttered bread snowy with mold. There is a little folded note, grapes cut into quarters. No meat. For years I've filed his claws and ground down his teeth and trained him how to hunger. Sometimes I make a game of it. We howl together, show the gleam of our incisors. I hold out an apple, and he eats it in three bites. A tray of Brussels sprouts, and he sniffs at it, frowns, nibbles. A honey cake, which he devours. A rabbit, curled like a question mark in my hands, and we both wait, frozen. The teacher comes out to meet me. She is all breathless and askew. What took you so long, she demands, elbows flapping like a crane's wings. I came straight here, I tell her, but she's not really listening. She drags me along the path. I check my phone again. The countdown started on the day my son was born, and I don't know what it means. 
Maybe the numbers are a warning or a cure. Maybe I'll understand them later. Maybe they'll slide softly into zero and life will continue just as before. He's inside, my son's teacher says, pointing at the flamingo enclosure. That was your first mistake, I want to tell her, putting the flamingos indoors. I go to the fingerprinted glass and see them perched like lawn ornaments, flashes of pink in a shadowy black room. Slick black floors, dull black walls, a green hose snaking into a round tub. Windowless, unless you count the huge viewing window that all my son's classmates have crowded in front of. Their noses squish against the glass. Look, a child says, a human child with hair and lips and skin. I look. The flamingos are one giant pink umbrella with several thin knobby legs for handles. Seven of them are drinking, heads scooped low. Five are preening, three or four just standing around. One is alert to my son's presence, prancing, squawking. My son moves along the back wall, growls, and the others begin to notice him. Their heads turn, 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 quick back and forths, like spinning ballerinas or flamenco dancers. No, like sprinklers, the kind that spray short, frantic bursts in one direction, then jerk all the way back and start again. My son prowls toward them, and I see the white gleam of his teeth. The flamingos scatter, flare open and shut as though clapping. The children gasp, fogging the window with their breath. Stop him, the teacher shouts. But I cannot stop him. I watch, too. Frozen. It's hunger that wakes him. He crawls from the cave out into splintering light. To salmon in streams, the sweet berries of dreams. His appetite makes all things bright. Away the earth tips, it pauses and slips and tips back this way again. Through light and through dark, long minutes of arc, we chase the year in its spin. A buzz in the air, gold dust on each hair. Six legs and tremulous flight From stamen to stigma She bears the enigma To pulled amber that shot through with light Away the earth tips It pauses and slips And tips back this way again Through light and through dark Long minutes of art the year it's been A flag the winds twiddle Its ribs going brittle It twists in the guise of a kite From green, yellow, orange To crimson and brown It twists till it falls into flight Away the earth tips, it pauses and slips, it tips 
gliding through dark, long minutes of art, change the year in its Minka Hoist with Waltz, written with Sven Siegert. Listen by Leslie Walker Tron. I don't like telling stories, but tonight I make an exception. A storm is coming, and my daughter is already in bed with a blanket pulled up to her chin. There once was a girl, I say, an orphan. I give the girl a foe to fight, a curse to lift. Something... A bird, perhaps, beats against the window. What is that? my daughter asks. Don't worry, I say. The girl in the story gets a few wins, a truth uncovered, a power revealed. But a good story is not always easy to tell. There are losses, too. Her loyal confidant, her home, her village. Who is knocking at the window? my daughter asks. No one, I say, it's just the rain. In the story, I introduce a new villain, one more dangerous than any the girl has known before. The girl is frightened where she thought she would be fearless, ambivalent where she thought she would be unwavering. Her powers, so recently revealed, fail her at a critical moment. The girl wonders things she's never wondered before. How did this conflict start? What really happened to her parents? Why is there no one to protect her? She is a child, after all. And what is she to make of those strange dreams she's been having? Bared teeth, bloodstains on her hands? My daughter looks up, eyes wide. What happens now? When the villain arrives, the girl turns away. She once thought the fight was the purpose of her life but she no longer believes the purpose of a life can be so thinly catalogued. She puts down her weapons, and the villain, seeing the girl's hesitation, falters. Outside, the rain's battering is fierce but rhythmic. My daughter rests her head against her pillow. This story is too long, she says. Get to the battle already. There is no battle, I say. Only a girl. My daughter yawns. Her eyes become slits. I get it, she says. No, you don't, I tell her. Listen. I pinch her legs. I pinch her arms. I pinch her cheeks, the ones I used to kiss as she was falling asleep. Listen, I whisper into her already dreaming ears. There is more. What beast hides in a shell? What beast lives underground? What beast flies a false flag? What beast will not be found? This beast hides in a shell. 
This beast lives underground This beast flies a false flag This beast will not be found This man covers his face This man stifles his sound This man wipes out all trace This man fears he will be found Long to burst from this shell Long to stand my own ground I long to fly my true colors I long for this beast to be found I long for this beast to be found I long for this beast to be found That was Minka Hoist with This Beast. Guess it's time for a little mise. And on the menu today is a snack size interview with our featured musician, Minka Hoist. The singer songwriter Minka Hoist goes about daily life disguised as Misha Hoekstra. Misha lives on a commune at an ancient mill in Aarhus, Denmark, where he looks after the sheep and chickens and runs the local songwriters' organization. He has translated numerous works of Danish fiction, including novels by Dorte Nars and Tina Kerr, as well as fairy tales by Hans Christian Andersen. And Minka Hoist, uh, a.k.a. Misha, was kind enough to answer a few questions for the Violet Hour. 1. What is your earliest memory of water? Two memories from when I was three and we lived in a downstairs apartment in Addison, Illinois. I don't know which one came first. Memory A. My mother had made me lunch, and a friend of my mother's being over in our kitchen, talking at the fold-out table while I ate lunch, and we... liquid a strange word I had never heard before. Insisting that I could hold whatever I was drinking in my mouth in, I bared my lips. I just had to clamp my teeth shut. No, you can't, she said. It won't work. Why? I asked. And she said, because it's liquid. A new word for me. Memory B. I was in the bathtub, lying full length, doing my best to float. My father came in, his face red, enraged. He yelled at me. He said I had left my new tricycle on the driveway, the concrete pad. I hadn't put it away. I had left my new tricycle on the concrete driveway, and he had backed over it with his garbage truck. He yelled and yelled. I didn't remember, and sure didn't do it on purpose. What I remember now is trying to disappear under the surface of the water, and being flooded with the feeling of unjust accusation. 2. What was your favorite item of clothing as a child? What is your favorite piece of clothing now? 
I never think about what I'm wearing unless it gets wet or I have to put something on or take something off for some reason. But when I was five, I had a Wheaton College sweatshirt, a hand-me-down, doubtless. It was heavy. It was a long-sleeved sweatshirt. It was a faded navy blue, and I loved it and wore it through seasons. I walked around the back pasture and started talk singing. Wheaton College, we apologize, because we've been bad and you are mad and now we're sad. Longer rhymes followed, but I can't remember them. Three. What is your songwriting process and creative practice like? How does your work as a translator inform your music? Songs start in one of two ways. I set aside a night with a bit of beer and smoke and, usually after midnight, go out to the music trailer in my collective and improvise my way into a compelling riff. I don't play much, so it takes me time to work it into muscle memory. Then I start improvising over it. First melody lines and then mumble text. The second way is to put myself in a co-writing situation. Typically, it's with a songwriter assigned at random at one of the retreats I help run for Orhu's songwriter workshop. There's usually a constraint or two that serves as seed, say, write something in 3-4, or a birthday song. The songwriting and translation are latter-day pursuits. They don't inform each other so much as have a common root in history. The root? A love for playing on that immense Wurlitzer, the English language. The history? Twenty years of trying to be a writer, of first poems and then the joy of edge tools, a crazy, beautiful, unpublishable novel that I squeezed out in bits and blobs over the course of a decade. The history is also one of Sejura. I moved to Denmark and stopped writing. A decade later, I got finally unmarried and started writing songs and translating fiction. They do feed each other in a sense. They're different ways of indulging rhythmic linguistic play. Four, what are your five favorite words associated with apple? Core, cox, cheeks, jack, eye. With thorn? Black, knout, walking stick, desert, sleeping beauty. With winter? Hibernal, hymel, rhyme, thaw, Fault spring. Um, just in case uh, uh, whoever's listening doesn't know, Heimel means wintry, other relating to winter. It's H-I-E-M-A-L. It's a new word for me. And uh, rhyme is the frost kind, R-I-M-E, not the poetry kind. Uh, okay, next question. Five. Finish this sentence and incorporate your current obsessions. Once upon a time. Once upon a time, animals were our friends, and boyhood didn't end, the flag didn't lie. Bonus, if you were a stuffed animal, what would you be? A polar bear. I dream of being spotless. Well, thank you so much, Minka Hoist, for sharing your words and music with the Violet Hour. And you can listen to more music by Minka Hoist at MinkaHoist.com. Are you or anyone you know a musician? Amateur, professional, experimental? Do you tell stories with music and song? Are you interested in being considered for a potential feature on Mr. Bear's Violet Hour? 
If you have answered yes to any of these questions, please send samples of your work, links to Bandcamp, SoundCloud, your website, digital demo tape files on Google Docs, whatever you have, to violethourmoon at gmail.com. Mousy, it's me, Mr. Bear. Oh, hey, Mr. Bear. Oh, Mr. Bear, what happened to you? Well, you should see the other guy. <laughs> uh, uh, actually, remember uh, last time, Miss Mousy, you were talking about doing headstands and, uh, yeah, uh, what happened though? Uh, well, I thought I would, um, you know, work on, work on my headstand, and I was getting pretty good, uh, against a wall, uh, so I thought I'd, uh, you know, try it without a wall. Oh, Mr. Bear. Uh, I know, uh, I, uh, I didn't, uh, have any mats down or anything like that, and, uh, uh, yeah, I, I didn't use my best judgment, and, uh, I, uh, I did, did get my little legs up in the air, but, uh, I, I fell and, uh, uh, kind of tumbled down all over the place and, uh, hit my head on the corner of the coffee table. Oh, Mr. Bear, that's a nasty-looking bump you got there. Uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of swollen, uh, so, uh, uh, I don't know, can you help me out, Miss Mousy? Oh, sure, Mr. Bear. You know, um, when, when something like that happens to me, um, first, I might put ice on it briefly, uh, but you don't want to put too much ice on for too long, you know, everyone always talks about icing injuries, icing injuries, um, but, uh, you know, the, the guy who came up with that rice thing, you know, uh, he, even he said, no, actually, you know, things have changed. That's, that's really not the route you want to go. Cause ice, um, you know, ice is for dead things. Um, that's what, uh, one of my teachers at the Commonwealth Center for Holistic Herbalism says. And, um, and I, I agree, you know, you put something on ice, that's, you know, that's, that's for dead things. So you don't want it for too long, the ice, uh, because, um, you know, you actually want to get blood flowing there. You want to get movement there to, you know, help, help heal and, and get, you know, there'll be some inflammation at first because that's, you know, your body's way of, of helping you out. Oh uh, yeah, I guess, I guess my body's, uh, really, uh, helping me here. Yeah, I know. It doesn't really feel like it, right, when you have a big nasty bump like that. Um, but what I'm going to do is rehydrate uh, some seaweed. Uh, just put a little in water, get it rehydrated, and we're going to put that on there. Um, and you're just going to, you know, keep that on there, re-wet it, reapply it. Um, seaweed is uh, fantastic, really uh, helps with muscles and joints and you know internally it's great it helps the body too and externally for strains and sprains and breaks and all kinds of things it's um really um can help with with wounds and and bumps and bruises so i think um i think we're going to get you some seaweed right away mr bear and um other things i always think about with uh 
you know, bruising or sprains, this kind of thing. Calendula and yarrow. Uh, calendula, you know, is wonderful, topical, vulnerary, you know, helps the skin, helps heal, and uh, is a lymphatic. Uh, so it gets your lymph moving, um, which helps get, you know, clear clear everything out of there, get everything moving to that area to heal it up faster. And yarrow, another wonderful uh, blood mover. And uh, yarrow, you know, yarrow is, is so smart. Plants are so smart. Um, yarrow is styptic. It can stop bleeding, you know, when you need to reduce uh, losing blood. But when you need to get the blood moving, yarrow can get the blood moving. It, it, does, it does both depending on what the situation needs. So, you know, here... Um, I'm, I'm thinking uh, calendula and yarrow, um, a nice salve or liniment we can put on there, but um, also, you know, drinking is tea or tincture. Um, yeah, so um, here you go. Here's some wet seaweed. Let's get that on there. Oh, that, that feels nice. Very uh, cool and, and soothing. Uh, I mean, also kind of drippy and wet and slimy. Well, yeah, the the sliminess is uh, is part of what's helping. Um, in here, let me just uh, put this little headband on. I can hold it in place for you. Oh, you look so cute, Mister Bear. Oh, thanks, Miss Mousy. I don't think I'm going to be trying a headstand uh, for a while. Well, now I think you know. Take take a little break till this heals, but but don't give up on the headstands. You know, um, this is just a little bump in the road or you know a little bump in the head um but i think you'll be back doing headstands again mr bear don't give up on it oh thanks for the encouragement miss mousy uh yeah i guess um you know i guess at some point uh they they say get back in the saddle right uh so uh yeah i'll i'll get back on my head again yeah that's the attitude mr bear um, and you know what else? I'm gonna make you, uh, some betony and skullcap tea. Uh, we've talked about betony before. It's just, you know, a f fantastic, cooling, relaxing nervine and just terrific for the head. Um, all, all kinds of headaches. Um, it used to be worked with a lot, uh, for epilepsy and seizures. Um, but, uh, it's, it's very grounding and, um, yeah, I think, you know, when you, when you hit your head, uh, you know, get some betony. That's what I always say. Um, and then skullcap, um, you know, is one of my favorite bitter nervines. Uh, it's relaxing and, uh, has a real affinity for the neck and head and shoulder, that kind of tension you get there. Oh, yeah, I know, like when you're hunched at a computer all the time. Yeah, exactly, and uh, Skullcap's just wonderful for that, and, um, you know, I like to just drink buckets of it, um, but you can also, um, you know, put it uh, directly on, too, like squirt some Skullcap tincture on your neck or shoulder pain, uh, or put some in a salve. Uh, but anyway, I'm going to make you some betony and Skullcap tea, and... Um, you know, just get lots of rest, Mr. Bear, and, uh, you know, uh, try, try not to hit your head. Uh, okay, uh, th thanks, Miss Mousy. uh, you're, uh, you're a real pal. Um, uh, anytime, Mr. Bear. 
And don't forget to remind your listeners, Mr. Bear, that I am just a two-dimensional hand-drawn rodent studying herbalism and then trying to cram, you know, uh, hours and hours and years of of studying into, uh, you know, five-minute conversation with you. And they should always do their own research. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll pass that message on, Miss Mossy. Uh, okay, uh, thanks for the seaweed, and uh, I'll be back for the tea uh, right after I finish wrapping up the show. Okay, Mr. Bear, I'll see you in a bit. Jeg har lige en tegning, en Hun soler sig i solen om vinteren. Hun åbner sine øjne med vipper af rim. Vækker en hermelin. Løb hermelin. Løb hermelin. Og den flygter frem min tegning. Den løber fra det hvide og skjuler sig fra solen om vinteren. For kvinden søger kåben, en kåbe så fin, hun søger sin Hoist, Astrid Alsbjerg, and Søren Luna. And Løb Hermelin is Danish for Run, Ermin, Run. And, uh, I've always been fond of ermines myself, uh, ever since uh, seeing one in a diorama in a science museum uh, when I was a young bear. Uh, I, think, I think it would be nicer to see uh, a live one, um, but... Uh, 
Anyway, uh, that's, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for spending a little time with me in the Violet Hour. I hope you enjoyed the work from the anthology And If That Mockingbird Don't Sing, edited by Hannah Grieco. And you can pick up your own copy at Alternating Current Press, uh, which is at press.alternatingcurrentarts.com. Or you can check out your local indie bookstore or ask your library to order it. And I will leave you with an oracle for the new moon and the month of March uh, from our trusty oracle Francine Pascal's Sweet Valley High, number 74, The Perfect Girl. Robin will do anything to keep George. And I will paw through this. And read us our oracle. I dare you to think of Vicky tonight, she told him silently. Let's go, George said. Okay, well that's your oracle, so uh, interpret it as you please. Uh, thanks again. Uh, take care out there. I'll be back with you for the full moon or thereabouts the end of the month. And until then, be kind to each other. Theme song and show music by Sugar Whiskey. Mr. Bear and Miss Mousy believe in radical love and kindness, in mutual aid, and empowering ourselves and our communities. Together we can dismantle the white, racist, colonizing, misogynistic, capitalist, homophobic, transphobic, ableist patriarchy. This podcast was recorded on Potawatomi, Kickapoo, Miami, Sioux, and Peoria land. Text your zip code or city comma state to 907-312-5085 and find out whose land you're living on. Uh, You can also go to land.codeforanchorage.org. For more information, there's also a helpful map at native-land.ca. This is just the first step in developing a land acknowledgement. Let's learn our history and honor the land and indigenous peoples, past, present, and future. podcast was produced in collaboration with the Boston Free Radio Podcast Network, part of bostonfreeradio.com and Somerville Media Center, Somerville's longest running public access media center that enables a vibrant and diverse community to express its creativity, explain its ideas, share its cultures, and foster the individual right to freedom of speech. Learn more about Somerville Media Center at somervillemedia.org or check out some of the other amazing Boston Free Radio podcasts and radio shows at bostonfreeradio.com. Thanks for listening.